0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another of these fun interview episodes. Uh, this one, we are definitely going across the world, I think, as much as humanly possible, as I'm talking to two people from the future. Uh, that is what it, I'm sticking with based upon how this all works in time zones. Uh, I guess one at a time, starting with PDF here, introduce yourselves, and then the game we're here to talk about. All right, so, yeah, we are the Blind Mystics,
1: Peter and Alec. Uh, I'm Alec, he's Peter. I'm Peter and And we have just published a game on Steam called Virtual Ricochet. It's a a VR experience, a tender shooter, set in space in a cyberpunk synthwave world. And uh, it's arcade action at its finest available on Steam right now
2: we've released it into early access so we want to get like people around and give us feedback so we can make a better game
0: perfect so let's, let's how about this thing based on my research wrong. it's the first game i'm able to see from you guys um have you guys made games together before is this your first game
1: yeah so back in the day uh our first game was actually a mobile game uh you can Still find it on the Android store. It's called Lonely Cube, and it's just a little puzzle game uh, to get us used to developing Unity, because prior to that, um, we had worked entirely in Java on our own sort of game engine, and so we needed a little icebreaker project to get us into the development environment.
0: Nice. So then you guys decided to immediately go the crazy route and then jump into VR and make it as hard on yourselves as humanly possible. Absolutely. I guess um, I guess either of you. What made you guys want to jump straight into VR?
3: Uh, so a friend of
1: ours ended up buying a HTC Vive in 2015. And uh, we all gathered around at this place back in the day that you could. And um, we had just an absolute whale of the time. And it was at that point uh, that we sort of came to a decision that we really needed to switch to a sort of, uh, an engine which is capable of handling this new environment and um and get to work right away on what we could uh later call sort of uh a game that we'd be proud of a game that we that would be pushing into new technology
2: another reason is we were looking at the PC games market at the time and it was really quite crowded and we saw the VR space as somewhat less crowded and maybe easier to get your name out into the
0: open. I still feel that's true. Based upon you guys using game, do you guys still feel that's true? Because I feel when I'm looking at VR games versus like just going even like early access games on Steam, like that VR market is so much smaller amount of games.
3: I
2: think, yeah, it is definitely smaller. But um, when we started working in VR to where we are now, it's definitely grown a lot. Um, so it's definitely not as small as when we started, but um, I still think, yeah, it's a lot smaller than the uh, um, regular PC games market.
1: Yeah, the key word being PC. I think um, one of our, like, we look longingly at other markets like the, the Switch market, and we think, like, maybe it would have been nice to have something on that platform. But, uh, you know, maybe that's for the second game after we've finished with uh with developing virtual ricochet to um our complete vision
0: yeah so let's let's kind of go into this then some more so as you said this is vir- virtual virtual if i could speak uh that we're talking about here and early access what is it to you guys that when you made this obviously you made this early access for besides money uh kind of continual user feedback you can just the game as it goes kind of when you guys were developing this kind of is this we pictured early access a kind of like when you were going like what did you guys had it was like this is our early access versus like what the final thing you're thinking is going to look like
1: yeah so like we're just a two person team so it's kind of you know you you kind of work on a project for a few years you get it get into sort of your own sort of mindset on the project and you don't really um, you ne- you need like fresh perspective to truly understand what would make something really great. So early access for us is an opportunity for um, really mass feedback and sort of larger amount of opinion than we would be able to muster just from people we know, especially as we're talking VR, so not everyone has the equipment, so we can't just send it to all our friends and friends of friends and just get their opinions straight away. Um, so early access gives us that Ability to reach a VR audience worldwide, and to uh, get the opinions of people in the US, in Germany, in the UK, in uh, in France, Spain, Argentina, all sorts of places, and uh, that feedback is just really valuable to um, to the improvement of the game.
2: Also, we wanted to get a good balance of the um, of the mechanics because we wanted to include a leaderboard system, but we wanted to make sure that nothing was ridiculously overpowered before we did that so we wanted to kind of gauge and tune the combat to make it um to make it work better for a leaderboard system in the future
0: no that that makes a lot of sense kind of it's always this fun Whenever you talk talking about like early access i was like there's kind couple of people who are like i just have no more ideas for the game and i just want to add stuff to it versus the other people who have like pages upon pages of stuff we need to add and it's always like there needs to be a healthy balance I feel like somewhere in between those two
1: yeah exactly yeah
0: so kind of as we kind of jumped into the game mechanics some more what do you guys kind of feel makes your game unique versus a genre that i feel like that's the joke always and a lot of times in virtuality is that like the default game in some capacity is like a shooter against drones so i'm kind of curious kind of what makes your games game unique or different than kind of that default mold that people talk about
1: yeah so I think what makes our game unique is that it sort of takes the approach of an interplay between sort of an attack and defense mode. So you're constantly looking for opportunities to um, to attack as well as to then defend multiple positions, which I don't necessarily see in other games that have inspired our work.
2: I'd say the, the game's kind of a, a mix between people refer to as racquetball games, so Racket NX, and a shooter game like Space Pirate Trainer. So we're trying to be a hybrid of the two, really get the player swinging their arms around, hitting away projectiles, as well as um, firing back at enemies.
0: So then kind of, as you guys have kind of gone through this process, how do you feel, is that one of the things you're still working on? Is that balance or do you feel like the balance is one of the things that people can hop in your game and kind of be like, okay, no, no, I understand this, this, how this works.
3: Yeah,
1: it certainly is challenging to, um, to ensure that at every moment you have, you have to consider these two options and to make sure that um, to, to an extent, we would like those to sort of somewhat overlap. Um, and it's more possible with certain VR headsets than others, but, uh, it's, it's certainly a challenge to make sure that it's always possible to defend, um, defend against all attacks while simultaneously being responsible for when, uh, when attacks come in too hot. For example, in our game, you can have some, you can have uh, waves where multiple drones are able to fire projectiles at platforms and that those platforms could be platforms you're presently on or platforms you're not presently on or a combination of the two. And we want to make it so that the player still feels responsible when they end up in an impossible situation or they have to just take one of those. So it's a, it's certainly a delicate balance.
0: You appreciate how mean you're trying to be, though, and you're like, "That's still the player's fault when they die. Like, that's our goal, especially it's always the player's fault. So
3: they're
0: saying, like, we're going to help them out here. You're like, no, 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 you got in this mess. You can't get out of this mess. Have fun.
1: (laughs) You should have done things in a different order. That's your bad (laughs) luck.
0: So one of the things I'm curious, kind of, is whenever I talk to VR people, uh, because uh, we get to play in this fun landscape where there are some rules, but very few rules, kind of. what has been kind of, since you guys did iOS, I think it was iOS or mobile stuff for this, what has been kind of like that big jump of being like understanding VR and like making it feel natural to players to you guys? What's been that challenge like?
4: Um, I think
1: Peter probably has more to say about this than I do. I think the input system is a really big
2: one. So on a mobile device, you have one large touchscreen. I guess you also have the ability to um, entering like you get the keyboard that pops up when you're entering text. Um, but in virtual reality, you've got these two controllers. Um, so trying to use a keyboard is something that we wanted to try and avoid because um, either you're going to have to take off your headset and type or uh, you're going to have to use some kind of clunky VR keyboard. Um, so we've tried to avoid anything that kind of requires that there. And also... Um, it goes from a two D, just touch screen where you can like tap wherever you want, to a three D environment where you can move around. Um, and we've tried to make some interesting, um, like interesting interactions in this environment with uh, when you've got the three D and full room scale available. Um, sometimes it works, and sometimes I think it feels a bit clunky. So we're we're still trying to work on that, but. Definitely it's been challenging.
0: Um have you guys to, had any that have you had any like mobility issues, Copsy when I, I've done VR stuff, the, the biggest concern of players is always besides it feeling right is mobility and motion sickness. Some kids guys ran into that at all, kinda like as your movement system kinda had to change to kind of respond to that.
2: Um yeah, actually, there there were a couple of considerations in our game. Uh motion sickness isn't too bad for this one because um you're not like the character's not moving. There's some teleporting, but you're not actually moving the character around. Um, the The other big thing was you're swinging a racket around to hit away projectiles. So you want to design it so people aren't swinging their controllers into their monitors or into their walls. Um, and that was definitely something we ran into early. Uh, we just had projectiles coming from every direction. Um, and yeah, while well, I was testing it, uh, I, some of them I literally couldn't hit before hitting the wall myself. And um, I've got, I like, one of my controllers is a bit shoddy now because uh, it's too much walls. damage. Yeah.
0: <laughs> also, the only yeah. thing yeah, yeah, I think yeah. of when you do that is, like, instinctually, if I know someone's from behind me, I might want to try to hit the controller behind me. But, like, I can't do that because how tracking works really a lot of times. So, like, oh, obviously, yeah, yeah. Or, or, like obviously, if they're all around me, my, my instinct is to be like, let's hope I just eyeball it. So I'm kind of curious kind of you get, so it sounds like you guys didn't do it into that a giant amount.
1: Yeah. So we developed on uh, HTC Vives, and they have the lighthouse tracking system. So for us, um, we're able to shoot things that are directly behind us. And um, and in many cases I'll track one drone with my left hand and then swing uh, swing in front of me to knock away a projectile with my right. Because generally... Um, yeah, generally it doesn't really matter if you're always perfectly on shot, as long as you knock away the immediate threat. You know,
0: I could I just—I'm just having yeah. just so many headaches. Just this balance. the more we talk about, it, the more I go back to we discussed earlier this idea of the balance of them too, especially talk about. It. I'm like, yeah, no, that had be a fun thing of being like, how long do we want players to live?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but on the topic of. Um, of sort of impossible to hit walls. we had actually a few more that <laughs> that were problems solved uh, much earlier in development. So um, it used to be that, for example, the uh, the projectiles would come in on a straight path, but this ended up being pretty bad because it meant that you ended up with a lot of very shallow paths as they were on the lower rails. And uh, so a lot of the time players would actually end up whacking the floor, which is obviously not going to (laughs) help. It kind of takes you right out of the experience. And uh, the one for me in particular, because I have a bit of a low ceiling, is the ceiling fan. Um, And I think a lot of VR VR games actually struggle to deal with, uh, with impedances on the vertical space. And that's something that we've tried to resolve and we'll keep working on in the future is to keep uh, keep players from hitting their own ceiling fans.
0: Wait, wait, I like, since you should you should like have the player, like when they start the game, be like, if there's a ceiling fan above you, hit this button. Every time they get too close, you like yell at them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually considered um, making a model of a ceiling fan so just that you could just it. position it's... it in the
4: space.
0: In my head, it's solely so you stop writing into the problem while you're developing, but you're just going to make every single player's ceiling fan just look like yours. And you're like, this must supposed to be the height of your ceiling fan because it's the height of my ceiling fan. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it'd be a whole it'd be its all its own menu with like height controls and things, but it's a pretty extreme uh extreme extreme solution to the problem, I'd say. That that might be a one point oh thing.
0: That is that's a great one point thing of like you're like, yeah, we have random props, to just match your bedroom, like who have a bad you can put in the game? A ceiling fan, who you can slant your walls, it's all useful. <laughs>
2: We might have to make them cyberpunk to get the theming correct.
0: Yeah, no, that'd that have to be. Or you have to, like, only, only, the feature only works on, like, that mixed reality headset, so they actually see their actual furniture, like, blind out.
1: <laughs> oh, dude, I could, I could make a rad ceiling fan. The ideas are just coming now.
0: I'm <laughs> glad we're, we're here to help you develop your games. I'm glad we established that. So I am curious, kind of, so as we kind of talking about you're in early access right now. You've been in for a little over a week. First response, has the feedback been what you guys thought the feedback would be like?
1: There have been a few things that uh, that we kind of expected. Uh, in particular, people were unsatisfied with the menuing experience. Uh, this is something we agree with and, uh, and we're currently working on a solution to that, um, sort of a full redesign. Uh, and to go with it, uh, we want to make the upgrades less confusing. We had a few um, people come, come through with sort of not quite understanding how the upgrades worked. And I'd say that's partially due to uh, sort of a, a mixture of different ideas sort of coming and going from the project over time. And so the end result has been that there's a sort of a history that people aren't aware of, which just, which makes the current design make sense but we need to bring it so that a new player can understand it intuitively from the start. So that will be coming in the coming weeks is a new sort of menuing system and a new upgrade system. And from there we'll be able to sort of um, improve the other content around those two things.
0: Nice. Yeah.
2: Another thing with the difficulty curve, we found like as developers, we're obviously pretty good at our own game, but when new players come in, um, either they uh, either they have trouble understanding the mechanics, but some people are actually really quite um, good at the game when they get in and they find it a bit too easy the first couple of levels. So trying to get a good balance on the difficulty curve is something um, we're, we're trying to improve on.
0: Sort of letting players more so pick the difficulty versus kind of like how it's going, or is it very you guys want to like, keep it a set experience. We just have to find the balance a little bit better.
1: We're definitely big fans of, um, being able to select in in a lot of experiences, being able to tailor the experience to, um, to what you're sort of comfortable with. Um, because as indie developers, we're sort of aiming to get the sort of broadest player base we can get, especially when you're talking about VR, where there's not all that many systems out there in the grand scheme of things. So, it's, it's certainly uh, a priority for us, for everyone to be able to have an experience, which is roughly of an equal excitement rather than of an equal difficulty.
0: Nice. And then I'm, I just have my your Steam page up next to me. Um, one of the things here, it says, I'm curious, kind of, uh, one things, obviously, you upping the types of enemy drones. Have you talked about it at all? If you want to talk about any of the future different types of enemy drones, we could be expecting kind of like changing up the, obviously, the battlefield a bunch.
2: Think,
4: um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, go for it, Pete.
2: We've, um, we've got a list of drones that we're, uh, we've been toying with adding. Um, like when we just think of a new idea, it goes into a, um, just like a, a document on Google Drive um, and we've just been adding ideas. Um, and then when we find time to make new drones, we just kind of look through the, the list of ideas that we've had in the past and we like, and we decide, oh, this one. Looks like it'll be the most interesting to play, um, and so we'll, we'll go and implement that
4: one.
0: Nice. Well, let's, let's see, make sure everyone understands the game. The game is a Virtual Ricochet. It is, you guys are Blind Mystics. The game can be found on just Steam right now, correct? Steam and it
1: has just launched into VibePort and VibePort Infinity. So if anyone has access to the VibePort Infinity subscription, it's available for free. Um, otherwise, you can purchase it for the same price as on Steam on VibePort right now.
0: Nice. And then I assume something like Oculus would be down the road when you guys go into full release would be like a goal, but not right now. The yeah, so it?
2: There's, um, like, it works for Oculus devices at the moment through the Steam VR framework. So if you have an Oculus device you can definitely play it. Um, but we uh we're definitely considering um getting it onto the Oculus store at some point, but it will require a bunch of changes to the code base. So um, uh, it's kind of a lower priority at the moment. Maybe something to happen in the future. Makes perfect But uh, we
1: do encourage Oculus players to get on board on either Steam or Viteport. both uh both platforms support Oculus devices
0: perfect uh, any other spots we should be sending people to go check out the game
1: uh, no but you can check uh, you can get regular updates on the uh, on the game and the, pro- the progress of our development as well as uh, the quirks of the development experience over on our YouTube channel which is by mystics on YouTube um, and you can also see the odd update from us on Facebook and Twitter as well
0: Well, thanks again, guys, for taking time out of your morning to talk to me and enjoy the rest of your day.
2: Absolutely. Have a good evening. Yeah, thanks for having us on.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of these interview episodes of the SWW show. I'm Mike, and today with me, a special guest from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, To get us started, could you please tell us your name and the game we're here to talk about?
4: Yeah, sure. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Matthias, and I'm the sole developer of Sublunar, uh, which is uh, just about to launch on Friday, November thirteenth.
0: First off, um you do realize you picked a Friday the thirteenth to launch a video game, right?
4: Yeah, I, I realized that. I, I should have realized that earlier, but I just realized that when I picked the, the date and had it been going out to, you know, at a couple of sources and. Then a week later, I realized it was a bad day. But
0: <laughs> You picked Friday the 13th on a week of two new video game consoles launching. I, I really appreciate yeah. the level you're like, screw it, we're going all the <laughs> way.
4: Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, then I realized, I, when I was looking at other dates, I realized there is no good date to pick. <laughs> so why not just go with for it?
0: Are you implying to me that ten thousand new games come on every single day of the year, and every single day is horrible? I don't know where we get this idea from. Check Steve's first <laughs> page, and you're like, "Oh, fifty games launched today."
4: Yeah, sure, but I don't know how much more strategic I should have gone with picking a good date. I was just—I'm keen to get a game out and just get started on some new product.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So you are the solo developer, as you said, of SubLunar. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your background, kind of? Do you do a lot of game development for this, stuff like that?
4: I haven't done any game development before. I'm a, a developer at heart, so I've been uh, mostly doing iOS development for uh, about 10 years now. And uh, so I'm I'm very... Keen at doing uh, development tasks and stuff like that, but I'm very creative as well and have have a background in design. So I wanted to combine those things and have been thinking about doing a game for forever. And just had uh, more time, free time on my hands, so I just wanted to get this, uh, get a game out there.
0: Nice. So I don't know if we've said it. So how would you describe to people what is Sublunar?
4: Yeah, so Sublunar is a sci-fi puzzle strategy game, I would say, where the goal is to convert settlements in a region over to your your faction. And you do that by gathering a crew and gear and weapons and uh, uh, trying to fend off bandits and subside uh, revolts that occur during during the gameplay. And uh, there's more aspects uh, during the game loop. So you have to upgrade settlements, you have to lower settlements' defenses, talking to NPCs, and more. And uh, when you progress in the game, you up, uh, unlock more regions and uh, you can go from there.
0: So immediately when you started developing this game, it was kind of like, have you had in mind, or kind of has it like transitioned into like a different type of game over time? Because that's the big thing in development a lot of times. We go, we're making this game. And then by the time you release the product, you're like, that's not the game I was going to make.
4: Yeah, that, that is basically true. That's uh, the, the game started off as something completely different. Uh, I had this inspiration from a game I played in my youth, uh, which I got basically from a cereal box. Which was a fun little game where you travel around Sweden and you try to catch a thief, and that's where the game started. But then I transitioned it into space, and then I added these factions and stuff like that. So then it's started. Then it's not similar to the game I had in mind at all from the
0: beginning. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. What game was it that <laughs> transitioned? What What game is it like? You chase people in Sweden, like. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it was uh, like some learning games that came out in the '90s. Uh, Basically, some very simple game where you had to catch this this thief. I I don't think anybody would remember that, even if you ask Swedes. But
0: yeah, I can't say I'm familiar with '90s game development in Sweden. Kind of (laughs) a little bit of my blind spot there.
4: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So as we said, the games, um, Sublunar either kind of you're going Mm -hmm. around exploring space stuff there what is Mm -hmm. so kind of as you've been developing it then so you're a solo developer which already Mm -hmm. sounds like a very system-heavy game um so i'm kind of curious what has your focus been kind of like from a player point of view kind of are you like when it comes to like the difficulty of the game and kind of keeping an eye on that
4: Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so like you said it's uh, very focused on the system i guess i i think I, i i'm not as uh uh experienced with the with the 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 graphical side so i try to focus on what i can do best which is logic and uh, programming stuff and trying to make that cohesive and uh, so the game has just uh, evolved over time as i introduce a new system i try to balance it and then i introduce another system to balance that and and when it's not fun anymore, I try to add a, another system. So it's everything needs to be balanced and uh, and fun.
0: When you say balance, is your goal? Do you think you want the player to like be challenged, like extremely challenged, like Dark Souls level challenge? Is it kind of like you want the player to stop it and think, but like most players should get through the game, kind of?
4: I, I think the the latter. So I, I really want everybody to. Uh, to uh, get through the game, but I don't uh, not ever want the pay- player to think that it's boring because it's too easy. So I try to balance that aspect. Uh, so whenever I felt like, oh, you you're just going through the game too quickly, then I try to balance that aspect of it.
0: You have like but, an example from like stuff you've probably talked about in the game, kind of like when we talk about like, because I I feel. The concern I think with a lot of puzzle games is uh, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, as we talk about even we talked about ninety games nineties games a second ago, is mm-hmm. it's really obvious to the developer, but sometimes they're really obtuse to the player mm-hmm. so kind of going through that kind of is there an example of something that you we've talked about in the past or whatever kind of that leads to like the level of we are talking about within the game,
4: yeah uh, I'm not sure what you're what you're meaning uh,
0: so as you talk about, like, you, talk about you, you want players to like have to think be challenged but not like mm-hmm. end of the world challenge kind of what is like in your game an example kind of like those types of puzzles
4: right so yeah I think yeah, the, the thing that I've been trying to uh, introduce in the game is that it's going to be gradually more uh, more difficult, so I think in the beginning when I have realized it's too difficult is when i have put I've unlocked every aspect every game mechanic from the beginning in the first region and i I put myself in that position and tried to understand how how can I understand all these uh, game mechanics at once and then i I tried to, to introduce them one at a time instead and, and hopefully that will make the player introduced to the first aspect understand that aspect and then when a new uh new game mechanic is introduced it's they're going to be more capable of at understanding that
0: makes a lot of sense kind of i'm curious like as your philosophy is developing it is there any point like you thought like of a hard limit for players being like a player can't understand more than like two systems at a time or ten systems at a time for one thing or have you been like? As long as we introduce it, players seem to to understand whatever we throw at them.
4: Yeah, I think the the latter. So I, I I'm giving I'm trying to put a lot of a lot on the player to understand things for sure. So and I'm hopeful that the aspects are going are graspable, uh, and I I'm hopeful that is not too uh, overwhelming, and that's why I. Taking these, uh, taking that aspect of uh, trying to balance, uh, not introducing every as uh, the game mechanic at once, uh, to uh, to try to balance that.
0: Yeah, no, that just feels like this is always a thing when I talk to people with like system heavy games. I'm always like, like I really fundamentally as a designer, obviously enjoy systems, and I'm always curious, kind of like. Where it's always like when you hand it at regular people, it's like really hard because, like, as a developer, always we, mm. we want people to see like that last piece of the game, you have all the systems running beautifully, but it takes mm. so long for people to get there. It's always this thing of like, yeah. how do we onboard them correctly without like ruining their experience?
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also thinking about, uh, because when you don't have all the game mechanics uh, on, then, then it's not as fun as, uh, like you said, the, the vision of the game is to have everything on and playing at full speed. Uh, but in the beginning, when you only have one mechanic running, then it's uh, it, this is isn't the most uh, funnest uh, experience. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, that is that is kind of interesting. So one of the things kind of is obviously, and correct me if I'm wrong. This my understanding is you are going as we're talking. We're talking on the tenth, and your game's coming out on the thirteenth. You're going into like a full release of the game. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going into like an early access build of the game.
4: No, uh that's that's true. So I'm I'm feel feel very comfortable that the game is done at this stage. Uh there's obviously I could have spent uh, two more months on it or even six more months and tweaked it and play tested it for a while but I think I'm I'm comfortable that it's playable at this stage and uh, that it's fun. I've actually played it for the last couple of weeks myself and I I enjoyed it. So I think it's ready to be launched uh, fully uh, on Friday.
0: Wow, that is I I do appreciate the confidence because most developers at this point <laughs> I feel like I like ready to pull their hair out like ready to go like throw the computer out the window and say I'm done. And you actually sound like yeah. somewhat like I got this. It's okay. The game's going well. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I have some part of the aspect that I really wanted it want it to be done so like you said uh, that 13th might not be the best date to launch a game but then also i, I could wait to the middle of uh, december but then i i really wanted <laughs> the game to be done and out so i can maybe think about uh, the next game i want to make
0: oh, that is that is so I'm, so I'm gonna throw you on the spot then have you thought of like publicly all the next i'm gonna make or are you kind of waiting to see kind of like how this game does and you have to do anything last minute to help the game out
4: yeah, exactly. So uh, f- first, I'm going to just let the, this game have a, some breathing room and see if people enjoy it or if there is something I need to fix. Uh, and then I probably we probably be, will be jumping into the next uh, project.
0: Nice. So, do you have otherwise any like current post-release plans for this game, or like unless something goes wrong, kind of your goal is kind of release Sublunar as this like standalone puzzle game.
4: Yeah, that is the first uh, idea. But if everything goes well and there's uh, uh, people that seem to like the game, I, I definitely see myself uh, trying to add maybe more regions, maybe more maps to the game and, and stuff like that. And I I have always thought about uh, the game being playable on touch devices, but I haven't ported or tested a game on. On touch devices, maybe I I will do that next, but uh, otherwise I will just launch it uh, and see how it goes.
0: Yeah, for being a mobile developer first, I did think of that and find it of interesting that you're just releasing this on Steam because this feels like a type of game that like would take some work to port to mobile, but not like the end of the world of of no. work because just the, how much of it is like mouse and keyboard and reactionary.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've always had in mind the touch devices, uh, touch uh, interaction design when I designed the game and uh, it should be fairly easy to port it, but uh, I really wanted to make the game for PC because I enjoy those type of games where you those strategic point and click games uh, and I've been working with, uh, I'm working with as mo- a mobile developer as my Day job, so I I did want to do something else during my spare time, basically.
0: No, no, you don't understand. Once you put you in a in a in a box, you have to stay in that box forever, especially in game development. So now you are the like <laughs> puzzle space guy, and then it must be on PC. Like you understand, we put you in boxes. Valve stay staying the same box. No, that's boy, not indie. Um. <laughs> so let's see. So as we got this right then, so the game is Sub Lunar. Um, mm-hmm. comes out on Friday, November thirteenth. Again, great mm-hmm. day to launch a game. Uh, <laughs> how much is the game going to go for in whatever currency you know on top of your head?
4: Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be $5 about there.
0: Okay, so roughly $5 in respective currencies, because mm-hmm. math is fun and currency exchange is fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Perfect. So yeah, thanks again. The game is Sub Lunar, go check it out on Steam. Uh, do you have any other spots that people should go check out you or the game on the interwebs?
4: Yeah, sure. I I've, I've been tracking the whole progress, uh, the whole development of Sub Lunar on YouTube. You can find my YouTube channel there, Matt Eric Devlogs, uh, and you can find that link on the Steam page as well.
0: Correct. Well, thanks again for your taking time out of your afternoon to speak to me and enjoy the rest of your day and maybe try, go try to get some sleep over the next few days. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice Program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right. From Plans range from $5 to 20 bucks a month you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the SWW Show. Today we have an interview episode, but it's a little bit different. We're not talking about a game per se, but we get to kind of talk about an interesting game dev tool. Uh, Today with me, Simon. From do you pronounce it said
3: Art or Art form. Art form.
0: Oh, it's it's the British spelling, isn't
3: it? It's uh it yeah. <laughs> no it's not. It's a unique spelling to get the trademark.
0: <laughs> it got there. I bet you got the trademark. I have no doubt that. I definitely, got, I definitely got you the trademark. I will give you that one. Um, so let's, let's get started then, kind of, Simon. What I was thinking to start this out is, can you explain, explain to people, we're here to talk about, I guess, Curvy 3D Go, and then kind of tool, curvy tools around it. For people who don't know, what is Curvy 3D?
3: So Curvy 3D is basically sketch-based modeling, but with all of the the fun stuff which you get around 3D. So you can do sculpting, you can do painting, um, you can export your models ready to use in games. So it it, gr- it grew out of the, the idea that there are some sketch-based modeling tools out there, but they're very like academic and they're niche. And there wasn't anything commercial where you could just draw and have stuff appear in 3D. So um, yeah, I, I went in that direction. And uh, I think it's the the most accomplished sketch-based modeling system out there at the moment. Um, and it's quite fun to use.
0: Yeah, no, that is, I think that's a fair critique across the board of all of the other tools out there that I think you're in some capacity kind of competing with is very academic, and they're very hard to use. And also, uh, a problem that they tend to all have, I'm hoping you don't have the same problem, is they just crash randomly all the time. <laughs> I don't know how often you've gotten to use it with, like, obviously, I think, I think like, 3D Max, Maya, kind of, like, the, 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 you going for a top-level market of that, but obviously the less, like, academic, like, hooper-focused of them. And those tools, like, the jokes are, I just save all the time because it's going to break.
3: I I naturally save all the time, but it doesn't crash very often. I think there's a few tools that the artists out there use, which they, they manage to get it to crash and, like, explode in triangles in all directions um but i think that's quite rare <laughs> i tend to avoid doing that yeah, i bad. had a i had one bug last week where um I was, I was doing some sculpting and a few points on the mesh stayed still and the rest of them like uh like spaghetti they spilled off and twisted and turned and it, it made quite a pretty picture so that's one of my prettiest bugs so far
0: that is, that is, I like you like, a bug, it's it's great, it's beautiful, it's pretty. Yeah, but we don't crash like the other people. That's a good, that's a good thing, I would argue. So, kind of as we were talking before, kind of, um, one of the things that kind of struck out to me is, and I think you kind of mentioned it, but, but I think we go back to it, is one of the things I think about these tools is it's super hard for new artists to get into them. And I'm kind of curious, what is it that you are doing, or your team's doing, kind of to make sure that, like, it's easier for someone to open up the tool and just kind of start using it?
3: Well, it, the first thing I do, when I, when I was learning 3D, it was all about vertices and edges and complicated um, modifiers and stacks and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, could you make something which didn't have any of that, didn't have any of the maths, didn't have any of the engineering, and it was just drawing and painting. Um, so I threw out all of the complexity. I used the 80-20 rule where you, just, you realize that you're only going to use a small amount of the functions in the whole program, so why not focus on those? And then I just focused on curves and sculpting. Um, and because it's it's quite focused, uh, it hasn't got a lot of junk in the interface. It hasn't got lots of hidden panels and endless menus. So um, everything you need to learn is quite quick to find. Um, and it's always in the same place. So you can go back to it and use it often. I, th- I think for most models, you're only going to use a very small handful of tools. You just want them at your fingertips. And uh, yeah
0: concerned at all that you might have scrapped tools that like you think people need, but then someone's going to be like, crap, I need that tool? And if so, is there any like remedy that you guys have come up with that is like, oh, you could write out on, so there's anything like that? Or is it kind of like, you're just kind of hoping that you caught the right tools and hoping for the best?
3: I, f- I find a, uh I'm trying to think of a, a good na- analogy. Um, It's like I, I throw a lot of seeds out there, and some things grow, and some things die, and some things I cut off. So with each... Uh, each new edition i think what are the big problems i've got to solve what are the big things which i found really difficult to do in the old version and i focus my efforts on solving those and sometimes i i come up with various solutions which are a bit weird or a bit hard to use so they just get culled out but the things that get left are the things that are really practical um so one example of this is uh I had this, the sketching primitives working quite well in version 1 but it, you couldn't really join them together very easily. Um so one idea to join them together was to go into meshes and create new faces and create edge loops and and join them together and it was all it was going backwards it was going more complicated. Um so another idea was well what if you could just join things together with a click. Um so i added that so i i merged these meshes i think it's called remeshing now it's it's in quite a few apps now um and so that that problem was solved and after a few sort of failed attempts i found one solution which i now just use all the time it's quite natural um so yeah so everything grows out of necessity and um I get a lot of feedback from artists using curvy who say, oh, I really, really, really love this feature in another app. Can we have it in curvy? And, and sometimes I say, yep, let's do it. And uh, I quite enjoy using it myself. And it's a good new feature. And other times I add loads of new stuff, like I added um, some HDRI rendering and it just didn't fit. It was a bit too complicated, a bit offside. So that got cold. So it's, it's sort of, tug back and forth between simplicity and power.
0: Ever concerned that inherently for a tool that you're trying to make that is going to be you're trying to make this as a simpler tool not simpler in like what it can and can't do but simpler in like user face and usability. Were you Ever concerned you're going to end up losing that because there's just so much?
3: I I cycle around in, in versions so I add in new features then I have to do a new version of the interface to then Present those features in an easy to access way, um, so it sort of revolves round and round. With the more uh, obscure features getting pushed into the bottom of menus, and the more useful features getting pulled to the forefront in like helpful toolbars and really clear panels. Um, so it's like sort of a bit of uh, a, a sifting between the more complex stuff and the everyday stuff. But the curvy three D Go, it's just really cut down to these are the things you need to make a really nice model to export and use elsewhere. You can you can sketch, you can sculpt. It's got all of the core cool sketching and sculpting stuff and all of the more, uh, I'd say more engineering-like stuff like arrays and deformers and modifiers is is completely <laughs> flattened out and simplified. So if you use it, you almost don't realize you're using it. Um, So, for example, there's one thing I've got where uh, you've got layers, like you've got layers in a paint program. And on a layer, you can tick that this layer is symmetrical and this layer is merged together. And anything you draw which goes in that layer becomes symmetrical and gets merged into a single mesh sort of automatically. Um, And you can still edit it and move the curves around and, yeah. So all of that would have been a couple of modifiers or a stack of commands. And now it's just like a couple of tick boxes on the, on the side of your screen for each layer. So hopefully people will use this stuff without even knowing how complicated it is under the hood.
0: So like obviously a lot of my experience is a lot more with the like bigger softwares as, we're, as we were talking about earlier. And I could just think of how much easier some of that could be because like, I remember when I was in school, like, everyone had to take, like, one 3D modeling class, and you could tell the artists versus the art artists very quickly, based upon how much they wanted to pull their hair out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it definitely, I can only imagine, like, having a scenario like this in that environment would just make everyone's lives so much easier, and I bet you would scare a lot less people away from 3D art, because I feel like even, like, some 2D artists open these programs and just, like, start panicking, we'll say, in the calmest of terms, because they're like, this is, this is a lot more, like, technical than I expected it to be.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm also putting in a, even in Curvy Go, I'm putting in a, like a two-tier system. So, the the initial stuff you get is sort of brushes on the left, like panel objects you've made on the right with your viewport in the middle, and you can just pick a brush, start drawing, and you can draw meshes, you can you can sculpt objects, and there's there's no um, like parameters or controls or number boxes or or any of that. But then if you want to really fiddle around with things you can up, open up um like a, a brush control panel and say oh actually I want to use a different picture or a different mesh for that brush and I want to fiddle around with some parameters but even then you've only got like two or three parameters to change so it's it's not much to learn quite simple and and then as like a third step there's an advanced tab on the brush controls and then you get everything then you get 20 or 30 brush controls all the stuff you want to make and i imagine that stuff is for people who want to make new brushes to then share with other people um, so i'm not expecting people to even open up the first panel um on their first day with curvy um and a lot of people would never get onto the advanced tab at all um but they will be using brushes made by the kind of more expert users who like learning what every little control does and customizing things. Um, So I've I've seen this model quite a lot in 2D painting programs where you can use brushes, you can share brushes and and you get a lot of variety there, but it's the kind of more expert users who are creating the brushes and pulling together all of the images and and controls and parameters you need. Um, so it's yeah, it's sort of cooperation. I'd I'd like people to sit down and their first couple of hours just to have fun with it, to be able to to draw some fun stuff. Think, yeah, this is cool. I could really go with this, and then maybe after sort of ten hours, they're actually producing quite good models with it already, because they've learnt the essential tools they need. Um, I've actually been using that as a like a test case. If if someone can sit down with it and in 10 hours be producing a good model which they'd be quite proud of that's great it means it's really quick to learn and quick to get started with and i've got several several pictures on my instagram where people have just had 10 hours to learn it from scratch and make some models and um they look really quite decent i'm quite proud of them
0: that's a very fast i to be that'd be a very fast thing like i was game jams i could see like that would be a very interesting art jam idea um I also I could almost see a world and I don't know if you've done this or how that works in Britain with your school systems because like in America our school system's a little more fragmented and like those are the kind of things you'd walk into like a college class but like here is freshman artists here's their first day go create and, and this thing of like getting them into these tools and like I feel like what, the more I talk about it, the more I feel that where your spot your tool works really really well is that like super junior artist who's like this is just all too much like I, I roughly understand how to make art and I think I could do it but like all of this software is just too much. I need something I can just hop into and not go crazy just learning the tools.
3: I've, I've noticed, I I guess you've probably seen YouTube tutorials, and some of them you could spend maybe 100 hours and you've produced a really simple, small object at the end of it. Um, whereas I'm really impatient. I've, I think if I can make a character in a day, um, that's good. But it back in... Um, Back when I was learning three D, I could maybe make a nose and an eyeball in a day, uh, because I was editing all the geometry by hand and vertex by vertex. And then, as as I got better with the tools and found easier tools to use, I could maybe make a half a torso in a day. And and now I can make full characters, heads, costumes in a day. And it's it's a nice unit of time for me, um, or as it used to be. Um, Back in college, it would be overnight. I'd just spend all night sculpting and then sort of stagger to my lectures in the morning, bleary-eyed. Um, but I'm quite impatient. I, I don't like the idea of spending a month or like several months on one model. Um, so Curvy's very much geared up for that. It's, it's, it's Some would say it's like rapid prototyping. You sketch something, you, you put in some sculpting details, throw on some textures. And it's ready to post, and, it, and it's, you're quite proud of it. It's, it's quite fun.
0: One of the um, things I want to jump back to as we're kind of talking about it, is you talk about how like, you have the ability to kind of like save brushes and give other people kind of these custom brushes with the macros whatever behind them. I'm kind of yeah. curious, kind of, I don't know if I saw that when I was through this stuff, maybe I missed it. Is there a part of you in Curvy that you plan to allow it, or you do allow it, where, like, Maya, 3D Max, even, like, the 2D tools, like Photoshop, allow programmers to go in and add extensions to these softwares? Have you thought of that being a path for Kobe? or you very purposely not letting that be a path?
3: Um, I've done it from time to time. At, at various points, I've had slightly more of that, slightly less of that. Um, early on, there was a whole scripting language where you could uh, play back entire uh, kind of use sessions or cut off various portions of the sessions and replay them. So potentially someone could write in a scripting language an output script for curvy, which then would make 3D stuff. Um but I found it was it was a niche. No no one really was interested. They just wanted the, the tools to be better and to be making more stuff with them. Um so I, I sort of backed off on that. Um
0: no, that 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 makes a lot of sense because I could I again it's, it's I think the market in which you're talking about which I think your tool sounds like it could really thrive in I think is inherently the opposite market of the people who are like I'm gonna have the the scriptor next to me who's gonna like add this very custom specific tool next to it like it's like those just inherently aren't not always the same markets.
3: Yeah, yeah, and if you're gonna do something a bit heavier with it, um, you mix and match with other software. I, I, I see a lot of people making pictures and they've used maybe eight or 10 different programs, um, <laughs> different bits for each stage of the process. So I, I think the more uh, I'd say like professional you get about it, the more comfortable you are b- jumping between programs. So you do maybe some prototyping or some sketching and curvy. You take it somewhere else for sculpting, take it somewhere else for animating and you you get the mixture. Um
0: yeah. I was gonna say the other thing that's kinda of stuck to me is I don't know if you mind, I d I don't know how technical you want to get is kind of how so what is this process of Crassy going from curvy, 3D Go, which is kinda of really the thing we're here to mostly talk about, to like a game engine like Unity or Unreal. Like did you purposely make that a very streamlined process? Is there like a few extra steps because it's maybe not as native on their back end to kind of get your get your model I, into those applications?
3: I th- I picked uh, a very Widely used format for my main export format so I, I export o b j formats Ouch. um so it's just click export, click import, and there it is in your game <laughs> it's it's not much to
0: I mean this is as much as possible <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah
0: nice okay no that is that is I think it's exciting because again, nothing quite like the first time I open up my uh, hit export and you're like, why is there ten thousand options <laughs> You see this checkbox and you, you're like, this, I feel like there's just, what does these words mean? Like you have to look a little dictionary next to you of like reading words. And you're like, yep. I guess that's an English word. Never heard that one before. What metric are we using? Like stuff like that just happens way too much.
3: I, I try and avoid giving choices where the choice is unhelpful. And every extra tick box, every extra choice you have to make, it just slows you down and it's more complicated. And if you if the defaults are fine, get rid of all that stuff and just go with the defaults.
0: Perfect. So yeah. So um, as we get to the end of this, one of the things is as we're talking about. So Curvy 3D Go right now is I saw it on Steam. Um, it's in early access. So I'm curious, kind of, what is your as you've talked about your plan for early access, and if there's any big features coming up next few months that like people could look forward to, kind of that isn't in the application already
3: uh there is quite a lot um mostly it's features to make things easier which you could do before but maybe would take like four or five steps and it's turning it into you could just draw and it appears um so i'm adding um a big materials and objects library so you can just pick from lots of prefabs to get effects on your model um again you could have loaded these imported them and copied and pasted but now it's just a click um, I'm adding mesh brushes so you can uh, draw a stroke and maybe it turns into a chain or it turns into a dragon's tail, um, depending on how the brush has been set up. Again, it's just you're drawing and it appears. Um, I'm increasing my, my poly count. Uh, it used to be you could sculpt nicely on about 100,000 triangles. Um, the next version you can sculpt happily on 50 million triangles. So you can get a lot more detail and density. And, and that goes along with new sculpting alphas. So you can paint with textures like you'd be able to do in other sculpting programs. I'm, I'm also unpacking all the help. I realize it's really hard for people to go away from the application, find a manual, read through it. So I'm putting it as much help as I can. So I've got nice big tooltips with videos and hints all inside the app itself. Um. And then there was the layer effects I said before. Like, you've just got a layer, and it can do symmetry. It can do, like, sort of a, a metaball-like effect, merging things. Just, just like, built in a little tick box on the layer. Um, yeah.
0: You, you're purposely adding some of these. I like some of these new things they're going. Um. So let's just kind of step through this one more time, then. So the, the g- thing we're really here to talk about is Curvy 3D Go. Obviously, it's part of the Curvy 3D Suite. Um, if, if someone is looking to buy the application, what does it cost? How do you get it all that?
3: So at the moment on early access, it's a mere $5 and I'm expecting the price to rise a little bit over the course of development. Um, so at the moment it's really encouraging as many people as possible to try it out, try and break it, have some fun with it. And, uh, so I can really get the most out of early access. it's sort of big brother program, uh, Curvy3D4, is uh, $100. Um, has a lot more functionality, slightly more complicated, but uh, is equally fun to use.
0: If I then, so it's $5, $100 for so expect respective software. Is, is that like a lifetime fee or is that like a subscription?
3: Um, currently, it's all lifetime access. So. <laughs> so, it definitely just, sounds it's, like it's, it's kind worth of trying a token out. Fee. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. At least from a from a person who, let's just say, people a lot of people are tired of paying these obnoxious subscription fees. It's probably worth being like cut that subscription for one month, trying out your software, and seeing if it's useful. Because just a way different, we'll just say way different cost wise. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, Simon, thanks again for taking time out of your afternoon to talk to me about Kirby 3D and Kirby 3D Go. Uh, if you any other place you want to go, send people to go check out your software.
3: To uh, kvthreeD dot com.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks again, Simon. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much. This podcast was a production of the SWW Show. To learn more, go to the SWW Show dot Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at the SWW Show. You can follow me at Mikey underscore Maroney. You can follow AJ at Low Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time on anchor.fm slash SWW and podcast services around the globe.